Welcome to the Exploring Podcast. My name is Corin Young. I'm the host here. And in this podcast, we explore topics that I find interesting and would love to learn more about. And I'm joined today by my friend, Christina Debray, who is a licensed mental health professional. She specializes in PTSD and trauma-related disorders. She is a performing artist, uh, plays music and sings. And she's also a cystic fibrosis patient and type 1 diabetic who has fundraised hundreds of thousands of dollars and educated thousands of people about living with those conditions. Welcome, Christina. Hi, That's thank good. you for having me. Yeah, it's uh, you know we, we've uh, spoken a little bit online, and every time I talk to you, I'm so fascinated by by everything, and figured you know this is a good opportunity to kind of like get together and and talk about stuff. I'd love to learn yeah. more about you. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, um, I've got these uh, pod decks here that have uh, questions, and uh, it's supposed to be good conversation starters. And uh, one that I thought would be appropriate to talk to you about is sharing a bucket list. Now, this is something that I had never even heard of until the movie Bucket List hmm. with who was in that? Jack Nicholson and Morgan yeah. Freeman. <clears throat> and, you know, that got me thinking about things that I want to make sure I do. And I feel like everyone kind of has a list, but like no one's actually like doing the things except for, I guess, Tom Island. You know, Tom, he's got an actual bucket list with like 50 things on it. Oh, no, it. I do know and Tom. He, and yeah. he, he checks them off off his list uh, all the time. Some of the things that he's like, all right, check that off, were things that I didn't know were actually on his list. Maybe he added them after he did the thing. I don't know. We'll have to ask Tom about that. But what are some things that you want to make sure that you do in your life? Well, so I do have a bucket list. Um, do you have like an actual written? Yeah, I do. So I had my last bucket list was 30 under 30. And now I'm 40 under 40. <laughs> so I did maybe like two thirds of the 30 under 30 wow. bucket list items. <clears throat> like 30 things that you wanted to do. And so now you've got mm -hmm. 40 things that you're doing. Okay. Yeah. And so the things I didn't do transferred over. Oh, okay. You, so, you, you can do that. You just carry them over. Well, I mean, I don't know if there's like official laws about this, but. <laughs> yeah. So, so of your 40 things now, um, how many have you done? And what, what are some cool things that, that, that you can tell us about? So some cool things. Um, well, one of the things is I would like to do a TED talk and I would like to publish a book about my story of my life with cystic fibrosis. I'd like to be a magician become a magician and have a debut at the magic castle in Hollywood. Um, some of the smaller things I have, um, I'd really love to go. I don't know if it even still exists. This was a, an older bucket list item is there was that restaurant called opaque. Did you ever hear about it? No. It was where it was like sensory dining where you go and it's in the pitch black. What? And you order your food ahead of time. You go into this place that's like pitch black. And then they serve you your meals. Oh, no, thank you. <clears throat> I just think it'd be a really cool experience. I did recently have one of my, I've had this for like 15 years. I wanted to swim with dolphins. And I did do that you got in to March. Do that. Yeah. How cool. You know, there was a uh, Seinfeld, for me, everything comes back to like a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> and, and there was one where they asked uh, Jerry <clears throat> if he would rather be deaf or blind. And he said, you know, the worst thing about being blind is that you wouldn't know what's like if there's bugs in your food. And to me, going into a restaurant and eating in pitch black darkness, like, how does that even work? Like, you get you got to just trust that the food looks good. Do they even worry about the presentation? I don't really know anything about it. But it's, it's just but it's on sounds your list. fun. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, so uh, you mentioned your story. You mentioned uh, living with cystic fibrosis, and this is one of those things that I have to admit I know knew like nothing about. Like it's it's a term that I have heard, but just like you know, you've seen the telethons for like muscular dystrophy or multiple sclerosis and fibromyalgia and mesothelioma. These are all things that are just like they're out there. They exist, but like until you know somebody that's like had to to live with it, like you never really figure you have to. To, to learn about. So uh, what is cystic fibrosis? Um, so cystic fibrosis is a genetic disease um, and it used to be considered a childhood disease because it was um, cat- so catastrophic and terminal. So <clears throat> now people are beginning to live into their adulthood. So it's now a childhood and adulthood disease. Um, what it is, is a disease on a cellular level in which the gate to the cell is broken, which doesn't allow salt um, to transport properly in and out of the cell. So we lose our salt as cystic fibrosis patients. And that as very core is very simple and that's what the disease is. And so that causes a lot of problems. So at its very basic level, um, it uh, normally everyone has, we have mucus everywhere in our body and the mucus is meant to protect us from debris that comes in our ears, in our nose, you know, in our lungs. And healthy mucus is supposed to be thin and slimy. And so because the salt transport doesn't work properly in cystic fibrosis patients, it impacts the quality of the mucus and it becomes thick and sticky. And so um, then your body recognizes it as a threat. And so white blood cells then attack the mucus, get stuck in the mucus, um, <clears throat> when the white blood cells actually are very sticky. So then it produces a white foam. So now you have thick mucus with then white foam on top of it. And that becomes then a breeding ground for all kinds of viruses, bacteria, fungi. So um, based on the severity of cystic fibrosis and how it manifests in your body, some people have it more manifest in their lungs. The very traditional manifestation of cystic fibrosis is your digestive system and your respiratory system. Um, so it clogs up the pancreas so you can't digest your food. It clogs up the lungs so that you get frequent lung infections, clogs up your sinuses, clogs up your ears. So um, I had a pretty s- severe case of cystic fibrosis. Um, I was diagnosed at six weeks of age and I was born in 1986. So at the time of diagnosis, the doctors told my parents that I would be lucky if I lived to my teenage years. So I was raised in hospitals in the 80s. We really didn't have any types of treatment for cystic fibrosis. So I would just go in the hospital for six to eight weeks at a time. Um, I spent most of the first five years of my life in a hospital um, and uh, Children's Hospital Los Angeles. And, uh, And so, you know, just a lot of very traumatic medical procedures. Um, And then as I aged, you know, things progressed. And, you know, through luck and whatever else you want to call it, um, medical advancements began to be made. So when I was eight years old, the first medication came out. That was called Dornase Alpha, also known as Pulmazyme. And that was an inhaled medication that you were supposed to take twice a day. And it actually broke down the thick 
white sticky white blood cells that attack the mucus. So it decreased the stickiness of the mucus to allow you to expel it. So with sticky mucus, does that just mean you're like you're coughing a lot? Like it gets stuck in your lungs? Yeah. So it's a constant cough, even like when you're not sick. Yeah. It's like having pneumonia all the time. I've I've had pneumonia several times and it sucks every time. So I can only imagine living with that constantly. Yeah. Now you mentioned it, it used to be thought of as a childhood disease uh, in just, you know, trying to learn about it in, in the last week or so. Uh, I found out that in, like in the mid-1900s, like the average life expectancy of somebody with cystic fibrosis it was eight years old. Mm-hmm. And even that and, was ambitious, yeah. And uh, and now people are, are like, I probably the first generation of like adults mm-hmm. living with it now. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was like, I remember when I was younger and, you know, you would meet, it was more rare, you would meet someone in their late teens or 20s in the hospital with CF. And they always were these extremely traumatized they look like combat veterans just very off very agitated people is this when you were a child or when you were in your teens um maybe like like junior high age i would meet these people and um and it's like i knew like that's gonna be me one day because it's like you lose all your friends you watch everybody die you you know have many near-death experiences yourself and you just (laughs) You lose your ability to cope and adjust with that. And that's exactly what happened to me in throughout my life. You've, you've met lots of people in the hospital that have dealt with CF also. Yeah, so um, because of cystic fibrosis, how we're so um, vulnerable to illnesses um, and infections, we're not allowed to hang around one another. So um, we actually had in the early 90s, they implemented infection control guidelines. So we had to always be six feet apart. We always had to wear a mask. When we would go to clinic, everybody would wear contact precautions where they would gown up, mask up, glove up, um, and then take all that off once they left the room and wash up before they would meet the next patient. Um, cystic fibrosis patients were not supposed to have any closer contact than six feet apart because um, they did find out that people who regularly, cystic fibrosis patients who regularly hung out with each other tended to have lower life expectancies because they were passing infections back and forth. Wow. Yeah, you know, I, I now that you mentioned it, I remember you wrote something on, on Facebook in the early days of the pandemic, you know, when people were complaining about being six feet apart and wearing a mask. And you said, you know, some people do that all the time. And yeah. I, ha- I hadn't even considered that. But that's, <clears throat> that's, that was nothing new for you. And so now that we're kind of like hopefully on the tail end of this pandemic, that's still something that, you, you know, you keep distance and, and wear a mask still. Like mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, now my health is a lot more stable than where it was before I was very ill. And so it was really non-negotiable. Um, when now I go into, um, environments like doctor's offices, hospitals, um, testing facilities, um, I do wear a mask and keep six feet apart. Um, so, and even just from medical professionals, because they have so much contact, you know, it's like the dirtiest place, like in the world is the gym and the second dirtiest place in the world is the hospital. And so it's filled with germs, every elevator button, every, you know, door handle. 
it's yeah at least people aren't weird about it now hopefully like if you're wearing a mask in public to, to be uh i mean yeah. i have been called a socialist <laughs> well same here <laughs> i'm like well all right i've been wearing a mask since the 90s so yeah before it was cool yeah before it was cool yeah so uh you uh, do you get to communicate with people online with, with cystic fibrosis? Like you, you get yeah. to keep like online friendships and so, are yeah, you one my, of the older people that you know? I am. Yeah. So, um, most all of my friends have died. Um, I have a handful of remaining friends. Um, and one of them, um, one of my longest friends that I met when I was 19 years old, I met quote unquote, um, <clears throat> we had an online relationship she was one of my best friends. She lives in Orlando. And I went to Orlando for Thanksgiving. And we met face-to-face -face for the first time. Wow. And um, we went out to her husband, my husband. You know, we, we all we went on a double date to, I don't even remember what restaurant. But <laughs> it was really special to meet her. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I can't even imagine, you know, like every time you lose a friend, it's, you know, tragic. But especially you know somebody that's like you've kind of you know some of their traumas and mm -hmm. so you in, in your uh, professional life as a, uh, a mental health professional like you specialize in dealing w with trauma and so mm -hmm. what, what got you into that path and want to help people with with their traumas um well <clears throat> I had pretty extensive PTSD um, starting at, I mean, from all my childhood years, and it really got bad when I was five years old. I was chronically suicidal for 15 years. And um, my parents had um, had me in therapy, but back in the early 90s um, when all this started, you know, even just PTSD with combat veterans was even a very new concept at that time. And so, um, you know, it just wasn't really talked about outside of combat. Um, no therapist ever evaluated me for trauma or trauma-related disorders. Um, I never received proper treatment. I just received talk therapy. And I developed a lot of really wonderful skills and a lot of self-awareness. Um, but it wasn't until I was um, in my mid-20s and uh, I was right after grad school, I went to a conference and total chance encounter. I met a woman named Francine Shapiro and um, many of the other presentations were completely booked and I wasn't able to get in. So I was like, well, okay. So she was presenting on a type of therapy called EMDR, which stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. She had actually developed this type of therapy in the late 80s <clears throat> at Stanford University, um, and it was getting more and more momentum. And it was invented for the treatment of PTSD for combat veterans. Um, I had heard of it before, but I didn't know anything about it. And when people presented it, it was often presented as something in the equivalent of going to a psychic. <laughs> it it, it seems like something that would be very science fiction, like like Minority Report or, you know, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Like it's, yeah. it's doing like the flashy thingy from the Men in Black and, you know, helping reprogram things. But yeah, it's supposed to be very effective. How does it work? 
Well, so, so I, so I listened to her presentation and, you know, and I was so impressed with how scientifically rooted this treatment was. So I went to myself, I got a, my own therapist and within six months I completely eliminated, not just learning to live with, eliminated my PTSD. And so I decided to specialize in this and that's what, you know, where I am. So in terms of how it works, um, you know, it's, um, ultimately we all have an information processing system within us, right? Just like we have a digestive system, we eat a piece of food, it goes through the different components of our digestive system, our body kind of absorbs what it needs to absorb, and then you poop out the rest, right? So what happens, um, when we absorb information from the world is that sometimes that information is not healthy information. Sometimes it's too overwhelming, too much. It's not something that we should have experienced. And when that happens, our information processing system doesn't know what to do with it. And so it gets stuck. And what the way that we know we have this information processing system is it's all the time every day. You know, we're thinking about things, we're processing, we sleep, when we exercise, we process. And so um, the brain keeps trying to take this information and refeed it through the information processing system. And that's why you get these loops. So it's these trauma loops of just thinking about the same stuff over and over again, ruminating on it, having flashbacks. It's all our body's information processing system that's unfortunately not working, it's failing. And so with EMDR, you know, we identify what that specific content is, break it down into individual memory components. So there are different components of memory, sensory data, sight, sound, touch, taste, smell, uh, cognitions, beliefs, emotions, and then somatic experiences, which is how we experience memories in our body, how we experience the world in our body. So um, we, as EMDR therapists, break these memories down into the individual components and then slowly refeed it through manually instead of unconsciously. We do this consciously and with intent, refeed that information back to the client while engaging the parasympathetic nervous system so that things don't get stuck. What does that mean while engaging the parasympathetic? So, okay, so we have our central nervous system, Uh right? So you've probably heard of your stress response, your fight, flight, freeze. Mm -hmm. So what happens is as the information processing system is um, becoming overwhelmed with all this, it stresses us out, it throws us out of our window of tolerance and our stress response becomes engaged. When our stress response becomes engaged, we shut down our higher levels of processing, right? We're not going to like solve a math problem when a bear's chasing us or when someone's trying to shoot us or rape us, okay? We are just, hey, put everything into running or getting out of there or playing dead or whatever you need to do to get out of that situation. So it's kind of a paradox because this cues up our central nervous system into our stress response and we lose the ability to process with our highest level of processing. So we need to engage the opposite of the stress response, which is called the parasympathetic nervous system. You can think P for P, P for peace, S for stress. Okay. So sympathetic nervous system, parasympathetic nervous system. So we need to get them to queue up that data without the stress response 
going haywire. So we need to cue up the parasympathetic nervous system. And that's where the eye movements of EMDR come in. So basically what we're doing is, um, you know, we're taxing the working memory. We're kind of, um, you know, doing this over here, but then also doing this over here and um, kind of tricking the brain of like, you have, you're juggling too many balls. You can't become too stressed out about one of those balls because you have to think about 10 of the other balls. And so the unconscious is able to reprocess that trauma and, you know, discard it from the body. So I always tell my clients, I'm like, it's kind of like taking a poop, right? Like we just need to get it out. Interesting way to think about it. I was actually thinking, you know, you mentioned that uh, one of your bucket list items is to be a magician. And I'm thinking that uh, it's all like in the distraction. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, you're doing the trick over here, but you're like, you know, waving a wand over here. <laughs> and uh, Shh, don't share the magic. Isn't, isn't that it? I wish I had like some some uh, cards or something to actually like have you do do a trick. But uh, we'll, uh, I'll invite uh, you to my debut performance. Um, I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. So, so you have your own private practice yes. here, in, here in Santa Clarita and you specialize in, in trauma. And I guess over the the last few years since you've opened up, like, was that five years ago? Yeah. So I've been in practice. Um, you know, I used to work for other people's private practice, but I started my own uh, since 2011. Okay. Um, but I started my own practice um, February of 2017. 2017. Okay. And so there's, there's been uh, a bunch of traumatic incidents either in Santa Clarita or places, you know, around here that, that people have gone to. And so I imagine that you've you've had no shortage of people coming to you, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that, that you've, you've been able to help. Um, but I, I must feel incredibly rewarding to be able to, to help them. How, how common is it to have somebody that you're able to cure them of their trauma versus, you know, you work with them for forever. I mean, most people like, and and that's, what's really important with EMDR is assessing whether it is trauma or whether it's something else, you know, so we can't cure people of things like autism or schizophrenia, um, things that are purely organic. Um, But um, there is a lot of research to support even organic things. EMDR can really improve um, like flare ups or, things associated with it. Um, And that's really where EMDR has gotten, you know, grown is that really, you know, think of it, if if you're someone with autism, you know, and you're living in a world that's not designed for you, it's designed for neurotypical people instead of neurodivergent people, a lot of things are going to be traumatic for you in a way that they're not for other people. So you're going to be getting what, what we call little T's. Little T's are kind of the everyday things that by themselves, they're not that big a deal, but as they accrue, they weigh a lot and it becomes very much like the straw that broke the camel's back. So there are the big T things like the saga shooting, um, you know, sexual assault, car accidents, abuse, and those are very obvious traumas. A lot of time, people come in, uh, I'd say 90% of the time, with what we call complex trauma. And complex trauma is the accrual of those little T's. And they may not have an exact reason. You know, they're not coming to therapy saying things like, you know what, Um, I'm a left-handed person living in a right-handed world, and I have trauma because of that. 
you know, they come into therapy just, you know, hey, I'm struggling to focus. I've been depressed. I, you know, um, struggle with relationships. I'm not sleeping well. So it just impacts your quality of life. And so I'm not sure if that answers your question. <laughs> I realized that I'm squirreling here. No, no, yeah, that's that's totally fine because it's all still fascinating to me. How, how does the EMDR work? Is it something that you like wear in front of your eyes? Is it like, does it have anything to do? Because it's, it's it just involves a, the eye movements, right? So um, it was originally developed with eye movements, but it can be any kind of lateral stimulation. So lateral stimulation is up and down, side to side, diagonal. Um and basically, you can do it with tactile. So during COVID, you know, we were just having people doing butterfly tapping where you cross your arms across your chest and you just left, right, left, right, left, right. Um, how it was originally developed was a therapist putting their fingers in front of your eyes, like, okay, follow my fingers. Um, so, and you can generate your own eye movements, but we actually do this already. Like this is very similar to REM sleep. So this process happens unconsciously. We're just doing it consciously. But you do something visual or some other kind of stimulation. Stimulation, yeah. And what is the and and while you're talking about things, like is that how that works? So I'll say, like, let's give an example. Can can you give me an example of something maybe from childhood, an embarrassing example in class? Something that's just maybe like makes you irk when you think oh, about man. it, but <clears throat> oh man, okay, I'm trying to think of uh, something embarrassing that happened to me, and very reluctant to share anything. But um, we can think of a different example if you'd like. I'll, I'll, I'll think of something that happened to a friend of mine <clears throat> okay. when he farted in uh, <laughs> okay. in study hall, and uh, he actually got in trouble for it. Okay. And I don't know if that was traumatic, but I'll never forget it because the the teacher there got really mad and, and said that he lacked self-control and he was like doing it for attention. But for him, it was like, I'm sure he didn't want to. It's okay. very embarrassing. So let's say that a client comes in and <clears throat> this is what they want to work on. Okay. And yeah, um, 30 years later, this is. Hey, you know, you know, some people. It is. It just sticks with them. Right. And so you come in and I, you know, we do all our prep, we do whatever. Okay. So when we're getting ready to do the EMDR, I say, okay, so we're working on this farting in study hall. Yeah. Okay. So when you think of the farting in study hall, what represents, if we could take a picture of the moment that was the worst part, what would the picture of that moment be? And maybe it was, you know, probably the kids laughing, kids laughing. Okay. What is the negative belief you have about yourself as you think now, looking back on that, the kids laughing? I am shameful. I'm an embarrassment. Uh, I should have known. Okay. And it's not what's important to me. It's what's, what's important to the client. Then we say, okay, as you think about the kids laughing, the, I am shameful, what emotions come up? Um, Feeling shame, feeling insecure, feeling sad, um, maybe feeling angry. Okay. Where do you feel all those emotions in your body? Ooh, I just really feel it. Like my heart's beating. I kind of feel this feeling in the pit of my stomach. Okay. Zero to 10, zero being totally calm and at peace. 10 being the worst you can imagine. How distressing is it now? I don't know. It's seven out of 10 distressing. Okay. Let's begin some tapping. Okay. And let's just focus on that. Focus on those different components and how you feel them. Okay. Let the client tap for 30 to 60 seconds. Take a slow, deep breath. Let it go. What do you notice? The unconscious will begin to just 
release that information. It does, it sounds crazy. It is totally the kind of thing of like, I could sit here and explain to you how to ride a bike and you're going to look at me like I'm a crazy person because you're like, I've never ridden a bike before. I mean, I don't know if you have or not, but uh, until you actually get on the bike and do it, it's an, ex- it's an experiential thing. So EMDR is not something that's done conscious. Um, it's just capitalizing on our brain's natural information processing system. And so this is why a lot of people think it's so kooky and weird because they just are like, okay, this literally sounds like something that the guy on, you know, sunset and vine is selling me like, but could, could that work for other things? Like if I, uh, like if I have to, if I'm in a class and I have to study something would like tapping on myself or doing any of these things like help me retain that information? Yeah, so there is a lot of um, applications for EMDR beyond just trauma reprocessing. So we can install, um, you know, beliefs like affirmations about the self. We can install resources. We can increase the strength of positive memories. Um, there's an entire branch of EMDR called performance enhancement. So for people who are performers, actors, athletes, whatever, hey, I'm doing this podcast, I'm feeling really nervous about it. Okay, great. Let's use the performance enhancement protocol to help you think about how you want to properly cope with that. It sounds crazy. It sounds like in the matrix, how you could just like plug in some kind of like, you know, So what it is, is like you are unplugging from the matrix when you're doing EMDR therapy. It's when you're in the matrix, you're sort of reliving this reality that's not really happening. And so EMDR helps you unplug from the matrix. <clears throat> that's such an incredible way to think about it. Uh, you're, you're very good at, at speaking about this stuff. And I know that you've done lots of uh, public speaking and uh, you've spoken to like doctors, like even as a little kid you mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. Like how did that all get started? I don't know, man. (laughs) I was always very articulate. You know, I had to live in hospitals my whole life. And, you know, my survival depended on my ability to articulate myself, to stand up for myself, to recognize when things were going wrong. Um, My mom tells this story. I mean, it's like one of her favorite stories to tell. Um, So, you know, um, I have two younger brothers. So my parents would, um, you know, they would spend, they would trade off spending time with me in the hospital and then <clears throat> wait for me to fall asleep. And then once I fell asleep, they would leave for the night and then come back the next morning. And so one time I was five years old. The nurse woke me up after my mom left and told me I needed to take medication. And I knew at five that the medication I was supposed to take was something I was allergic to. And, um, I told her I'm not taking the medication. She told me I had to take the medication and I was like, I'm not taking the medication. I need to call my mom. I called my mom. She drove down to children's hospital. And in fact, they were giving me the wrong medication. I don't know why I had that ability when I was five years old. I don't know what special quality it was that I had or, you know, some God given whatever, um, you know, but that's you know, I was labeled the pain in the ass patient. (laughs) And, you know, I tell my doctors, I'm like, yeah, and that's the reason I'm still alive. Yeah. If that's what it takes, you know, for for you you to let them know, uh, not not that one. Uh, The reason I I bring up, you know, the public speaking is because you seem to be kind of a a natural performer. Like I know that you, you're a musician and a singer and you want to like get into magic Mm-hmm. And so I wonder where that comes from, just the, the desire to be in front of people and, and, 
have the eyeballs on you, which is terrifying for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I've never found it terrifying. I just always feel very energized. I feel like I'm at home when I'm performing. And, um, you know, I used to do a lot of singing and music for me was always a, uh, like where I felt at peace and where I felt safe. I felt seen. I felt like I was who I was and I could, you know, I felt like music was there for me when nobody else was able to be there for me. And music always is there for me. It always is, has the availability to be there. It doesn't judge you. It doesn't, you know, avoid you. And so, you know, um, I know performing is different from that, but it's really nice to be able to just plug into that place, that very artistic place and share that with people. Yeah. Awesome that you don't have uh, stage fright. What, what instruments do you play? Um, so I used to play piano and ukulele and, um, throughout all my years, as my illness progressed, um, I developed pretty severe tendonitis. And so I unfortunately had to give up those instruments. I played piano for about 14 years. I played, uh, ukulele for like three years. And can you still sing? Yes, I can still sing. What, what, What kind of stuff do you like to sing? Uh, I sing a lot of things. I mean, in the car, on the car ride here, I was singing Queen. <laughs> um, That's not easy. You know, I, I sing a lot of Broadway, a lot of Disney, a lot of pop. I love jazz, um, folk music. My dad always told me that I have like a flavor of like a country, a country, you know, kind yeah, of flavor to me. I'm sure you me. could, yeah. So, which I don't, I don't. I don't listen to country music and I don't sing country music, but I could. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's fun. It's, singing anything is fun. I'm not very good at it, but I, I enjoy singing in the car also or shower. Well, yeah. I'll invite you to a karaoke night and I'll teach you how to are sing. You, are you hosting one? Or do you go? No, but I could. I used to go to JJ's and then they shut down. Where was JJ's? I remember seeing. Off tournament. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so we used to go to JJ's pre-pandemic, and then I drove by, and I'm like, when's JJ's opening? Oh. And now it's a new place. It's like a barcade and a pizza place. So I'm like, mm, I wonder if they're going to do karaoke there. That, that sounds cool, actually. A barcade. It sounds cool, but I'm looking for the karaoke. Uh, yeah, so I know. I'm I know. Like <laughs> so you, you mentioned uh, tendonitis. um, does the cystic fibrosis it causes other illnesses right mm-hmm. like like different organs uh let me work differently let me read this list to you oh so there's no limit to how cystic fibrosis can kind of like manifest in the body it kind of just at some point becomes a for lack of a better word clusterfuck um, so here is the how cystic fibrosis impacts the whole body you had this like on speed dial but I guess it's because you shared it recently. So it so just a list of just, this is not an exhaustive list, but so like it affects the nose and the sinus. It causes nasal polyps and sinusitis. It causes um, gastroephageal reflux disease, so GERD. It causes people to not be able to digest their food. Um, so we have to take supplement digestive medication it destroys the pancreas so is, is a diabetes connected to yeah. That? yeah okay diabetes is secondary cystic fibrosis um so it has destroyed the pancreas so i'm now also a type 1 diabetic 
Um, it causes liver disease. Um, it causes lots of problems with the intestines. Um, so babies aren't able to have their first poop uh, when they're born uh, sometimes. Um, it can cause tears, um, rectal prolapse, where like literally, I don't know how else to say it, your butthole can fall out. Like yeah. it just falls out. Um, you can have fibroids, cancer, appendicitis, um, hernias. Um, we have issues with our bones. We have bone density problems, osteopenia, osteoporosis, arthritis, um, reproductive issues, um, delayed puberty. Um, you know, I am four foot nine and that was because I couldn't digest my food and I couldn't grow. Oh, so, so malnutrition is one of the biggest issues. Do you, you take a lot of like vitamin supplements? Yeah. Yeah. So the, with, as advancements have come out, I haven't had to do that. I mean, I still have, uh, I can't digest my food that hasn't gone away. Um, but I still have to take vitamins and supplements as well. Wow. And, and, uh, lung issues is probably the, the pr- so primary lung, thing. Lungs. Yeah. So, I mean, it causes heart issues, lung issues. You can get bronchitis, um, pneumonia, um, hemoptysis where you're coughing up blood. You can have lung claps, uh, respiratory failure, um, reactive airway disease, basically like really severe asthma. Um, so you get like mucoid bacteria where the bacteria, basically develop shields that can't be killed with antibiotics. Um, we get pretty regularly fungal infections. Um, so, so as you mentioned, you know, the, the medicine can kind of keep you from, from getting sick at times, but the damage has kind of been done. Would you be a candidate for transplants? Yeah. At some point in my life. So print transplants are not a cure. They typically add five years of life. And then you also live your life without an immune system after that because they have to wipe your immune system in order to not reject the organs. So um, transplant is, you know, an extension for people whose organs are expired. So that would seem be seen as a last resort. It's a last resort. And um, there's a lot of like, you know, clinical finesse in being able to understand when is appropriate time to do a transplant. It's not a cure. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it, you know, and you're looking at a hundred thousand plus dollars to do a transplant plus being on a list. Um, you know, and then everyone with transplant dies of infection or rejection. Wow. So, uh, one thing I was wondering is, you know, because it's a genetic disease, if you were to get a new pancreas or a new set of lungs, those new organs w- wouldn't ha- have the the disease built in, but would it eventually like attack Correct. also? Um, it's, it's yes and no. So the organs would not have the disease built into it, but it's not just the disease that destroys the organs. A lot of the treatments for the disease destroy the organs. So we have to do a lot of aggressive treatments, medications. Um, even just things like being a type one diabetic, like that's going to destroy your kidneys. That's just, you know, impacts your vision. So it just becomes this very cascading effect. Yeah. And that you, you mentioned that a, a transplant would be like in, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
but your medication just to keep you alive is also very expensive, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, just pharmaceuticals alone, um, it's about $400,000 a year. That doesn't include, um, you know, and, and obviously a large portion of that is covered by insurance most of the time. I hope so. They will, you know, give you the runaround getting those medications. Lots of denials. Sometimes it takes many months to get approval and you have to go through this process every 12 months. Um, so, um, but yeah, I mean, it, but any transplant hospitalization treatment is in addition to then now the already hundreds of thousands of dollars that you're paying. Yeah, and, and how are you uh, still alive? Because you mentioned to me that you have some, I don't know if it started out as like an experimental treatment or as a new mm-hmm. uh, medication that's, what is it exactly is it doing for you? It's like, you know, that Fort Minor song, it's 10% luck, 20% skill. Oh, yeah. 15% confidence, power, will, 5% play, whatever. I, I would never it. have known. I'm usually good with name <laughs> that tune, but I wouldn't have known Fort Minor. Yes. <laughs> um, but it's basically like there's a lot of factors as to why I'm alive today, and it really is like, <clears throat> you know, nothing short of a miracle, um, you know. And it's not just me. Like, it's, yes, it was absolutely me and you know, fighting and literally begging people to give me access to clinical trials. Um, you know, these clinical trials, they would have 120 slots um, internationally. And um, so I would have to fight, you know, with the other 70,000 people worldwide, 30,000 people in this country. Is that how many? 70,000 worldwide? Mm-hmm. And 30,000 in the United States. Yeah. So it's it's somewhat rare out of 300 million people, 30,000 is one in 10,000 people, right? Mm-hmm. So that means that in a city like Santa Clarita, that's like 300,000 ish. Are there like 10 other people in our there community? Are a few, yeah, there are people in Santa Clarita with cystic fibrosis. Yeah. And that you've spoken to? Yeah. I'm uh, kind of like the CF celebrity where I'm like hiding, like, yeah. <laughs> don't take pictures of me. Don't. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Wow, so it's so it I, so it is pretty uh, pretty rare now. From from what I've learned about it, both of your parents have to be carriers of a genetic mutation, mm-hmm. right? And most people don't even know that they are. If they are, like one in twenty five mm-hmm. people. So carriers are sim- carrier, right? symptomless carriers, right? Okay. So um, you know, and it's autonomal recessive. So if you think of like back to high school, Punat's table. Right, where it's like there's a 25% chance that if two carriers get together and have a baby, that there'll be no trace of the di- of the gene. 25% chance that the baby will have a copy from each parent and a 50% chance that the baby will have one copy. See, that's like the Fort Minor song. It's tw- 25%. Uh, <laughs> so, so basically you've got to want... If both parents are carriers, and I think one in 25 people is, and most don't even know it, then you have a one in four chance. Yeah. Okay. So I was the one in four. I won the lottery. <laughs> so be, be, because it's a genetic mutation, does that mean that everybody with cystic fibrosis is somehow related, like way up, there's way up over, the line somewhere? There's over 6,000 mutations of the disease. So I have one of the most common and then also a rare one. So I don't know about how, you know, this whole like, are, do we really all come from Adam and Eve? Are we all really just like distant cousins? I have no idea. 
but maybe. That, that's pretty I, I've heard things like people like everyone who lives in Mongolia is a descendant of uh, Genghis Khan. Or is it Genghis Khan? I think Genghis it was Genghis. Khan. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> That's not my level of expertise. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, you do. You do specialize in in, uh, in trauma. In I mean, if you have questions and about, music. you know, certain things, I can answer them. Other things, I'm like, I have no idea, honestly. Okay, so, so <laughs> where are you going with with all of this? Like now that you've kind of got like this new gift of life, uh, and you've got your your bucket list items. Uh, where where are you headed with all this? You know, I used to really you know and look i'm a dreamer i have so many exciting things like hey let's make a documentary about my life i want to make like a trilogy of cystic fibrosis and talk about people who went you know who died people who went the clinical trial route pe- whatever i have exciting ideas but what i've learned most and this really became apparent to me and you know during my sickest years is the value of just living in today. And this is also, you know, what we learned in COVID is like all we have is right now, you know, and I don't ever want to get caught up in destination happiness. I don't know how long these medications will keep me stable. I don't know if I'm going to live to be 80 years old. You know, I don't know if I'll live to be to, you know, till tomorrow, who knows? And so I just want to live each day as it comes, live my best life. Um, yes, I have goals. If I get to achieve those goals, great. If I don't, great. Um, I just strive to have, you know, a better quality of life than I did for most of my life. Yeah. Well, it's, it sounds like you're, you're on the right track. Like things are, that you're actually like living and enjoying things now where it, it sounds pretty, uh, crazy early on, you know, living in mm-hmm. hospitals and everything. Yeah. So I, I thank you for sharing the story. I know that this uh, it's not easy stuff to uh, to talk about or, or to hear about. And it, it's something that it, that I frankly knew nothing about. And so I, I thank you for, for coming here and, and sharing this with with me and and whoever's listening. And uh, and I look forward to hearing more from you soon. Thank you. Cool. So for everyone uh, tuned in, uh, this is the Exploring Podcast uh, with Corin Young and my guest uh, Christina Debray. Uh, you can find this podcast on YouTube, Facebook, uh, Spotify, Amazon, Pandora, iTunes, iHeartRadio, uh, wherever you find your podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please uh, give it a review and uh, I'll catch you on the next one. Mm-hmm.